Welcome to the Irish Occupational Therapy Podcast, hosted by me, Jen Trecek, and me, Irene Rutledge. This podcast is dedicated to exploring the world of occupational therapy, sharing the latest research and techniques, and providing insights into the many ways that occupational therapy can help people of all ages live more fulfilling and meaningful lives. Whether you are a practicing occupational therapist, a student of occupational therapy, or simply curious about this fascinating field, this podcast is for you. We'll be interviewing experts in the field, sharing stories from the front lines of occupational therapy practice, and providing tips and advice for anyone looking to get the most out of their therapy. So sit back, relax, and join us on this exciting journey into the world of occupational therapy in Ireland. Today we meet with Sarah Devlin, a special needs teacher and member of a senior management team in a Dublin-based school. Sarah is an advocate for a universal approach within schools. She provides valuable insights into how occupational therapists, educational staff and parents can work together to meet the diverse needs of students within the classroom environment. Sarah also gives us honest and constructive feedback into what teachers need from occupational therapists supporting school-aged young people. She shares exciting innovations, which her school is trialing at the moment. A very warm welcome to Sarah Devlin, specialist teacher on the Irish Occupational Therapy Podcast. I feel very lucky to have worked with Sarah in the past. We worked together in Middletown Centre for Autism for a period of seven years. Sarah is one of those people who, when you spend a bit of time with, you come away full of knowledge and ideas and inspiration. So no pressure, Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Sarah's in a puddle on the floor here. (laughs) (laughs) You're just just scooping me back together. But no, thanks so much for for inviting me along. It's a a super idea and I'm, I'm delighted to contribute in any way that I can. Hopefully there'll be one or two little nuggets of information that people can take from it. So... Yeah, we'll see how it goes. Great, Sarah. Sarah, we're going to start off just with your journey in becoming a specialist teacher. Why did you choose to work with children and autistic children in particular? Quite a question. So uh, I guess when I finished up my uh, my undergrad degree in, in psychology, I didn't know much at all about the path I wanted to take. Other than, of course, I didn't want the college bit to end. I absolutely loved it. And I loved Maynooth especially. Um, but I did know I wanted to work with with children and in a clinical um, field. So uh, I just wasn't sure how that would come together or if it would come together. But turns out that's really all I, I needed to know and just to be open and flexible in whatever opportunities that came along. So it started out, it was at home in Monaghan and there was a, an advert in the paper, the independent like it was back, I think, 20 years ago, I'm ashamed to say. But uh there was a school in Kildare it was a designated school for autistic children and they were looking for a tutor I wasn't overly familiar with the location that was (laughs) where in the world is this and of course I didn't drive at the time but uh my dad being a guard he called up the local station in Maynooth and found out all about it and figured out that it was fine and we, we could work it out. So I did the interview. Uh, <laughs> I love your, like your dad doing background checks before you go anywhere. <laughs> it was already before we even started. <laughs> but um, yeah, the rest is history. I absolutely loved working in that school. Um, the children were so fun. And 
no day was ever the same super interesting and I just came became fascinated with the the whole field and just how different all of the children were and their different strengths and learning differences um and of course things that were were hard for them and how could we could best support them and I guess at that time um we were lucky there was so much money in the country like in the in the early 2000s like we had a fairly sizable consultancy budget and we had lots of I guess leaders in the field coming over from the states to to train and support us on the ground um so from very early on I kind of got that whole idea of multidisciplinary working um so we had like speech and language pathologists from the states we had specialist teachers come over behavior analysts um and occupational therapy as well um but to be honest at that time I knew little or nothing, mostly about occupational therapy, I would say, um, and the potential value it offered the, the, the field um, and for, for, for autistic people. I think the therapist that was working in the school back then, like the kind of a lot of the focus was around um, like gross motor skills and fine motor skills and like handwriting tasks and things like that. So there wasn't huge conversations about like sensory life yeah and, and <laughs> regulation and the whole functional piece that you know OTs are so kind of I, amazing I think, I think there was a time wasn't there where handwriting seemed to be like the thing that people went to yeah, OT for yeah, and it's so so restrictive it like the whole idea of handwriting is just such a small part of somebody's life it, it it really is and in saying that when we did handwriting like OTs did it incredibly well and we had the handwriting without tears program and it was it was brilliant so we learned a lot about you know posture and pencil grip and the handwriting without tears was a really super addition to our practice at that time as well um but certainly uh I didn't understand uh how the, the whole piece around sensory processing and regulation and just the the experience for an autistic person um at that time I think we were absolutely uh, just not informed for, in, in that context can I just ask you um a question there um you said you were a tutor specialist tutor um what's the difference between um a tutor in a school um specialist autism teacher or what what what's the terminology what are the different roles well it, it, at that at that time so I had my undergraduate in psychology and so this was very much a, a clinical field it was a pilot school at the time that had a, you know the the approach was very much based around applied behavior analysis um and even though we were working in a, in a multidisciplinary way and as much as we could that was the kind of primary focus and training and I went on to do a master's in psychology then but specifically focusing on behavior analysis um, and further to that I wound up doing like a lot of outreach and consultancy stuff in the UK and the states and got other kind of pieces of of experience and training but I wound up um, feeling like I was working in schools a lot and so there was still quite a significant gap in my knowledge so I so obviously the experience in the school was brilliant um but from that like after doing the masters and everything I ended up doing lots of outreach work like with families with schools and I was working in schools more and more 
Um, but that's when I recognized there was a huge gap in my knowledge in terms of the curriculum, um, the workload of a teacher, what reasonable expectations would look like in terms of recommendations and things like that. So I went back and did the kind of qualification in primary teaching as well. And so that was like a really important addition um, in my training and learning. And then very soon after that, um, I I graduated, I spent some time teaching and then I spotted that Middletown Centre for Autism had initiated their first recruitment drive in the Republic of Ireland. So I applied and worked as a specialist teacher with Middletown for eight wonderful years um, and learning alongside some of the most fantastic professionals, uh, families and young people. Um, it was it was absolutely amazing. And I suppose that transdisciplinary way of working was was quite new for me at at that time um but the team were were absolutely fantastic and it was just a luxury to you know work with uh some really amazing young people so are you a teacher in a classroom with young people coming into or do you provide support to teachers around how they teach autistic children or currently um i'm working as an assistant principal in a fairly large school in dublin with responsibility for all things special education so i am just like a regular teacher in a mainstream primary school here in dublin so i get to do all the things i love now so working in a team working closely with children with additional needs and getting more involved in in policy and practice as well at a leadership level so um yeah it's all worked out at the moment i'm in on the special education team that role i guess for some of the children uh there is a requirement to do some withdrawal so it might be uh, small groups in uh the special education classroom uh, on occasion it may have to look like one-to-one -one in in the special education setting but more generally and I suppose just the way the education landscape is now, it's definitely more important that we get efficient, more efficient with how we provide support in the schools. And Sarah, do you have, do you work alongside OTs at the minute? Are there, is there OT provision in your area in Dublin at the minute? You guys are a rare find. I will <laughs> do that. <laughs> we certainly don't. I don't have in any way the same access to occupational therapy as, as what we would have done in the past. Um, the the areas like you said suggested aiding they're very different in terms of what supports are available when I was in the autism class uh, the the teacher in the autism class the teams I guess were more accessible whatever the outcome of that is though there is the the kind of other occasion where you get a wonderful OT um, like we had a, a really super experience with an occupational therapist uh with one of the children and she did a fairly comprehensive assessment, uh, gave feedback. She did a Zoom with, with all of the staff involved and the parents. And it was just a really helpful piece of work to make sure everyone was on the same page and everyone was understanding the rationale for the recommendations and how we could best support the child, but also, I guess, managing everyone's expectations about what the school could realistically do um, and could provide for the child. Um, so there are some interesting st st statistics and 
I was looking at this for our own school, but I think now we have 20% of the primary school population are presenting with additional needs or requiring additional support. And that was the most recent data published by the NCSE, and that was a few years back. Certainly in our own context now, that's more looking like 24, 25% of children. And that's that's one in five children in school who are requiring additional support in some form or other. And so I think that's something that's important for everybody to be mindful of in in terms of making recommendations and 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 providing support to schools it, it's in, incredibly challenging um to, to navigate that at the moment for for all schools i would say uh, we as occupational therapists visiting schools working in schools uh, we want advice from you as teachers what can we do to collaborate with you in the most effective way to provide the best service for the students in your school it's a tricky one and I guess it's something it's not just for occupational therapy but for for ourselves in schools like how can our special education team be more efficient how can NEPS be be more efficient because I think the idea or the model of individualized support is is just it's just really really difficult in terms of capacity to provide that at the moment and so in terms of the continuum of support, I don't know, are you guys familiar with that triangle that we are living yeah. by? That's where we get all our kind of rules of engagement from. But I I personally think that if we spend more time at that tier one, the classroom level support, building capacity with class teachers and figuring out what that whole school approach our whole class approach looks like. So we're kind of thinking more about the universal design for learning that all of these super helpful strategies that occupational therapists, along with lots of other um, disciplines can share with schools, that it just becomes part of our standard practice in a classroom, that it's not us putting in individual recommendations or accommodations for specific children. This just becomes part of our practice um and and that's realistic Sarah I suppose and when you think about the growing numbers that you talked about there the stats so we do yeah, they're, they're it's yeah it's 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 crazy really like we can't be going after individual um recommendations like one of the things that we tried in our school this year um was actually looking at flexible seating in a classroom um but at a classroom level so the teacher was managing all of that like obviously we we used our experience and advice whatever we could from occupational therapy over the years but we knew things like you know the movement cushions and wobble stools and we also have lap desks um we got those and like standing desks or standing at a windowsill so that within the classroom teachers could provide various different options for children in terms of their learning so we were able to kind of create systems where those children were able to access that when they needed it so that's something that we're going to roll out more generally in our classroom and it does save capacity because you're not relying on individual you know whether it's SNAs or or resource like special education teachers to come and provide those movement breaks they're happening naturally in the classroom 
That's amazing because it stops that kind of singling out of individual students as well. And, you know, I get that a lot with teenagers, that kind of sense of I have to ask for something and that makes me different. And that's so, you know, I I remember even in my own primary school, kids going out to Mrs. Casey's special education and everybody knew who those kids were. And it was so um, stigmatizing in ways. Um, So your universal design and whole school approach is so much fairer for everybody yeah and like that you know it's it's in the context of neurodiversity like it's something that we want to do a lot more of and I know I don't know too much about it Aiden you might know more maybe yourself Jen but the leans project um they spoke about it at the Middletown conference this year it just seems like a really really nice piece of work to do in, in a school setting and all schools have their kind of focus week where they'll you know talk about neurodiversity or, or learning differences or how everyone's brain is different and that's okay and you know but I feel like for us anyway in our school we want to really bed it more um, consistent consistently into the ethos and the policy and how we can do that over a period of time. Yeah, yeah, the Lean Project, just for context for any listeners, it's a project that was originated in Scotland um, and it's a primary based project that tried really to increase the um, awareness, peer awareness around neurodiversity. Um, my only gripe is that it's not available for post-primary because I feel like oh, that's, that's right, yeah. you know, it's not, it's, it's just primary for now. So hopefully it will roll out to post-primary, but we will include a link to it on our show. It will be helpful to, to some of our listeners. Yeah. And, and even on kind of trying to get to work smarter within the schools, occupational therapy, like there are so many super programs that have come from the field, like, one of the the pieces of work that I feel quite strongly about is emotion coaching and emotional uh, emotional literacy and teaching that consistently across the school or at least identifying uh, a common language within the school of how we describe those um, experiences for children. And so the zones of regulation, I know, is a, a go to for a lot of um, schools and obviously we try and complement that and modify it where where needed but it's certainly one of the programs that's helpful not not just for children but also to give the adults or the teachers a language around describing you know if if a child is having a particularly difficult day and they're in the red zone that that's okay um, and everyone is acknowledging that it's okay to experience all of these things but let's think about how we're responding to our emotions and all of that. So again, that kind of whole school approach for occupational therapists working in schools, like leading that emotion coaching piece or building capacity and knowledge around sensory processing and sensory regulation and how as a whole school, we can do better with the regulation piece without responding to individual children and again one of the things that we set up in our school we have a regulation station on the first on the on the ground floor for the infant classes and we have another one um on the first floor for some of the other classes and it's a very simple you know we've got our alerting activities our calming activities our organizing our organizing activities and the children have full choice you know when they do need a break like what kind of options would be helpful for you 
right now and they absolutely love going there you know they they really enjoy it and it's a it's something again I guess there's a it's a little bit more resource intense because it's it's withdrawal from the classroom but it's it's very they self-manage when they get there they know what to do it's all very structured um and and they know what they need to support the regulation to go back in in, in the classroom so yeah that I think that would be helpful yeah and in in terms of that whole school approach, um, you're involving all of the staff. Are you involving, or how are you involving the parents in in getting on board with all of that? Well, where I guess the the our knowledge of for you know individual children comes from, like what would be helpful for them to do at the regulation station, is definitely um, provided by by parents and uh, usually a private occupational therapist. There's like absolutely parents have more knowledge than we ever could uh, try to attain um, ourselves from just observation um, and so through the, the 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 way the processes are set up in school like we'd have uh, fairly uh, regular meetings like you have your standard school support meetings where you discuss the targets for the year and what parents feel are important and you do a review meeting and you have an end of term um, kind of closed down as well, like before the summer. But, you know, informally, like across the whole year, there's always kind of regular communication with parents because some of the, the children who are accessing more, more support, like at that school support plus level, it's just so important that we're aware of what's happening for them in their daily lives, like how they are in the morning, where you know what their state of regulation is like has something happened to kind of draw on their energy that day and then we're able to kind of make any kind of a modifications or changes to whether it's a timetable or to reduce demands or whatever it might be um but we're absolutely relying on parents for for that information so there's ongoing communication and for some of the children you would have you know a, a very specific communication system whether that be digitally like on on class dojo or you know google classroom or google docs or whatever the system the agreed system is it's you know in real time you're receiving kind of information quite regularly about the children um and sarah is is communication the best piece of advice you would give for any parents listening who want to ensure that their child is having the best experience at school absolutely uh, absolutely uh, i think but certainly from my experience with Middletown, that was one of the things I think we had the benefit of that we were able to work in both settings. Like we were at home and in school and we were supporting everyone, like parents, the young person and and school staff. And that's one thing I think that I would always try and prioritize as a teacher is establishing that relationship and like building that relationship with parents and with children so that you're creating a space for really open and honest dialogue and that nobody is feeling judged or blamed or that you know that one context is more responsible for the other for whatever concerns might be happening at any given point in time um it's just it's it's super super important like you always get 
the absolute best kind of outcomes when it comes to children and their their success in school when when everyone is is working together for sure and I think not taking anything for granted as well you know if a child hasn't slept well hasn't had breakfast those are the foundations aren't they yes. no one's kind of information yeah. your expectations yeah and schools like you know for most schools they want to help you know what I mean like you, you, there's there's lots of different things that we can do I know with one of the the kids last year there were times where he would just refuse breakfast like he didn't want to have it and so it wasn't there was nothing on the parents but then we would see a little bit of the fallout in the morning in school like where you would see behaviors of concern and when we sat down and, and talked about it as like oh I see there's there are days where he's just not having something for breakfast and so we agreed that he would take an additional little snack bag like he would just have like an optional morning snack bag different to his lunch so he didn't he wouldn't like to kind of confuse the the lunchtime thing but he just had like an additional snack bag option and within his timetable there was a consistent time in the morning where he would always be offered do you feel like having your snack now and it was something as simple as that that just supported him to to do so much better more consistently in school and so that's it that's exactly it same with with sleep and we can support parents I guess in trying to advocate for additional supports and services if that's what's needed. Sarah could you share with us um, an example or a success story that you have from working alongside an occupational therapist and the difference that it made to a child's life? There are lots uh, some of the some of the, the the best examples I think have come from when I worked in Middletown because we had such access to both the occupational therapists on the team and um, also the primary care services like occupational therapy within those services as well um, and that's I guess why everyone just loved the work so much because you really felt like you were making very significant differences to the quality of life for for so many young people but for this purpose I don't know I feel like that's a bit of a <laughs> luxury example I did mention working with an occupational therapist before um and again one of our infant pupils comes to mind uh one of the little guys that came into our school last year and he had no diagnosis but of course he's on, on a multitude of, of wait lists for for that uh he had a very difficult time settling into school between that period like the transition from preschool and the period between uh like September and Christmas was super challenging for everybody for him for his family and um, there were lots of behaviors of concern he just wasn't a happy boy in in school at all uh lots of noted differences in social communication sensory processing uh how he learned uh motor skills everything was 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 quite difficult but he was the best little guy <laughs> like he was you know I just so full of of joy and you know loved kind of getting out and about and meeting everyone around the school and and all of that but we really needed to figure out how we were going to support him um 
to 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 learn and to access the curriculum and to follow that kind of classroom agenda that's that's obviously an expectation um in school but some of the things that we we could see were like he was always take his shoes off like whether it was in the class or outside of the class running from the classroom chewing on pencils and other anything he could get his hands on in the class really crashing into people and into things covering his ears and quite distressed at yard time um during transitions uh he would usually just he'd like you know if I was taking him from his classroom to the special education setting he'd always like run his hands along the wall of the corridors or you know those crinkly borders on the notice boards he would always be doing things like that um and tons of of challenges around uh writing tasks and all of that so I suppose I was in the lucky position where I could see that a lot of those behaviours of concern were related to his regulation and there were lots and lots of strategies available to to support him. Um, So we were able to, myself as his special education teacher, along with his SNA and class teacher, were able to put some of the basic things in place, like we had visual timetable and very carefully planned sequence of activities for him. Uh, What else do we do? Like uh facilitated opportunities for movement breaks like both within the classroom and outside of the classroom he had a little workstation set up inside the classroom which was really helpful for just organizing his time and it was very regulating activity for him as well it's very predictable um and we did use a lot of you know little work systems in different environments to support, to better support his organization. Um, things like, you know, giving him or offering him like headphones to learn in a different way um, throughout the day as well, that it wasn't all in class and expecting all of this. And so we had, we put quite a bit in place, or at least we thought we had, and then this absolutely fabulous OT came on board and uh she did a fairly thorough assessment and provided a really comprehensive report to to parents and us in the school as well. It, it was just super because, you know, we had some understanding of what was going on for him and we certainly weren't um, interpreting any of this as a behavioural issue or we weren't using any traditional kind of methods in terms of trying to get him to wear his shoes without, without trying to facilitate that that input for him. But the OT was just so clear in her advice. And I think from a school's perspective, when you truly understand why a child is experiencing what they're experiencing or how they're they're experiencing the environment, everyone is so much more invested in the systems and the recommendations and the suggestions. And so she was just you know, really great at, you know, what we could do in terms of the pre-writing activities, like building, uh, like I think there was like a four-week therapy program to develop hand strength and his ability to control his finger strength. Um, She supported his parents around his diet. So again, there were a lot of recommendations that we could incidentally do within his routines in school that didn't warrant all of the extra kind of one-to-one withdrawal so he had much more like you know the chewy foods for his lunch um 
there were things around how we could, you know, the teacher had described various different activities through the course of the day, whether it's, you know, with learning Jolly Phonics or things like that, that he was, whether it was putty or Play-Doh, that he was manipulating those kind of things to make to make some of the, the sounds and letters. So that was helpful, like that incidental piece. And he was just like a different child completely than after Christmas. Like he was much more regulated um we all understood what he needed um and obviously he still requires lots of of support and guidance in school but we certainly understood him much better from that experience with the OT than we we had done previously Sarah it sounds like um you've had some really amazing experiences that are really supportive for the young people in your school um but sometimes as OTs we don't always get it right have you ever had, um, you know, a situation where it's been a bit more difficult with an OT or you haven't got the service that you needed? In the school context, it's it's a little bit more challenging because usually at the moment it's parents accessing private occupational therapy. And like you said, like usually, you know, we have really good experiences and where we reach out and ask for clarification, whether it's you know, to do a, a Zoom call or for the OT to do an in-school visit, like they're super accommodating. But we actually did get um, a report through for a child, uh, again, done privately just before we broke up for summer it was a child in first class. And yeah, it was quite incredible. The it's the report was just like a few lines describing the child's current family situation. Um, some of the concerns that were described by the parents at the time but then we just got like three pages of links to websites to 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 like resources um with no context no explanation of how we might use them no real understanding of the link between whatever assessment had happened and the rationale for how or why the school might do this or or no advice it was it's it, it's it's not something that happens a lot but it certainly um was quite um I guess concerning because we just there was not much we could do with that like you know even for parents trying to figure out or prioritize what to to buy or what to invest in for us as a school you know how how do we support this child's regulation there was really you know like there was web pages to purchase like a lap pad uh, and a body sock and headphones, but again, no real context. And I think the first page for the parents was that the child should do X amount of OT. Um, and uh, I think then there was just a list of like a listening program and all of this, but again, no real, you know, I've seen lots of OT reports and most of them are super comprehensive and they, kind of coach the reader through each of the sensory systems and how what the function of the system is and how it's impacting on that particular child and what we can do to help them with it but that just wasn't a feature in this particular report um so it just makes everything much more difficult and again it's getting back to that you know some of the best reports that we have and ones that we can implement most consistently are those that do draw on information from school about the kind of class routines and OTs I think are better than anybody at having that real sharp laser focus about how you can 
use the natural environment of the child to facilitate really functional kind of uh, skills and activities that they need to practice, but within the context of their own routine. And that's, again, like when we were talking about the capacity of a school and just the sheer number of children that are presenting with additional needs, that's very, very helpful because we can just do that consistently in their day because it's part of the routine whereas this particular uh report was was generic and not specific to the child or keeping the child at the center of, of that's right yeah and, adults. yeah and and we do get like you know when you when you talk about generic we we do get some reports that are incredibly general um not just from ot but uh you know some from from psychiatry if it's a diagnostic report for ADHD or something like that and very general recommendations that really aren't appropriate to the age of the child and you know like I don't know if I've described sufficiently the challenges that are faced by all schools at the moment in terms of providing the right support at the right time to the children who need it um, so from a school's perspective we certainly need you know really sharp kind of supportive recommendations that we can implement consistently um and even you know within the reports prioritizing like if you do only have this time with the child this is what I would prioritize in school this is the most important thing that you could do like having that highlight in a report um schools don't have a huge amount of budget or money uh, so again, and I think most OTs are brilliant at this, actually, where they're very considerate about how to use the environment to facilitate lots of the recommendations, as opposed to expecting whether it be parents or school to go out and get tons of, you know, new fancy equipment. Sarah, this has been so insightful for occupational therapists, I'm sure for parents listening, but also for other teachers as well. I've certainly learned a lot from listening to you today yet again. Thank you so much for giving us your time. No, you're very welcome. Thanks. That's all for today's episode on the Irish Occupational Therapy Podcast. We hope you enjoyed our discussion and found it informative and engaging. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at irishotpodcast at gmail.com or connect on Instagram or Facebook. And remember to subscribe to our podcast so that you never miss an episode. If you found this episode helpful, please leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Um, your feedback is important and helps us to improve the show. So please do leave us. Thank you for listening to the Irish Occupational Therapy Podcast, hosted by myself, Jen Trecek. And myself, Aileen Rutledge. We look forward to sharing more insights and knowledge with you in future episodes. Until then, take care.